This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Oh, my friends, there are good pivots and there are bad pivots. We all know those bad pivots flailing away wildly, just searching for the correct answer. But what makes a good pivot? Well, we're going to learn it today all on the podcast. Welcome to the Founders Place Podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. Now here's your host, Todd Wills. Todd Wills. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Today, very excited to have Manoj on. He is going to talk about a company that he has founded, is CEO. It's called Art Ratio. You may not have ever heard it, but if you're in the art world, you certainly have. It's all about art conservation. Not my jam, you say? Well, it should be because Manoj has done something pretty incredible. He's made a multiple series of pivots by truly understanding what the customer wants, needs, and desires. That means field research, going out and talking to people, going to trade shows, hearing, listening, and asking lots and lots of questions. You think you know your customer? You don't. Manoj knows his customer. So let's hear today on the podcast. Manoj. Just like we do with everybody here on the podcast, who the heck are you and why are you here? <laughs> Thank you very much, Todd, for having me on. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Uh, my name is Manoj Patak. Um, I'm originally from India. I grew up in the UK and I've been living in Spain for the past 20 years. Uh, so I'm settled here. I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Art Ratio. And we are trying to do with the display market what Apple did with the phone market. So in other words, we are trying to add smartness and connectedness and intelligence into the whole display sector. So we're focused initially on arts and antiques. We are gonna move across very shortly into the retail space. So when you combine that whole marketplace uh, you're looking at everything from art galleries, museums on the left-hand side, all the way over to the Givenchy's and the Pradas on the right-hand side. Uh, and our products are based on using a type of glass called smart glass, which can change its transmission as a function of the voltage applied to it. Um, so when you walk up to one of our display vitrines or display cases, it becomes transparent and the lights go on and that gives you a theatrical presentation of the objects inside the collection or the products. Uh, when you walk away, the lights go off and the glass itself turns dark. And so the object, probably most of its lifetime is sitting in darkness, which is very good for the conservation of the collection itself. So that's the product in a nutshell. Okay, so normally at this stage, I would start to pivot over and we'd start talking about the philosophy, the, um, the approach that you've taken, your leadership skills. But I got to tell you that 
the idea behind this is fascinating. And this <laughs> is not something that I've heard a lot of people either um, think about, talk about, gear themselves toward. This is a truly in the, in the use of the word unique space. So how did you come up with this? What was the genesis behind it? What was the driver to get you to say, hey, wait a minute, there's a need here that needs to be filled and I'm the person to go do that? Uh, right. So I, I'm an engineer uh, and I have a particular fascination for material science and physics, uh, but I'm not going to bore you with all of that stuff. Uh, <laughs> I was experimenting in my lab with a number of different functional materials, uh, things like light transmitting concrete um, and also this type of switchable glass. Uh, and I realized that what I was playing around with was an electronic, electronically controllable light filter. And I thought, what kind of things would benefit from controlling the light? And the first thing that popped into my head um, were, you know, was art and, 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 and antiquity objects. Uh, so, but I knew nothing, absolutely nothing about the museum <laughs> sector, let alone the art sector. Uh, and so uh, back in 2009, I built a small prototype, which had just one panel of smart glass on the top. It was a very simple, almost, almost jokingly simple sort of box <laughs> just to demonstrate the proof of concept. I took some photographs and I took that on a big tour as I went and talked to lots of different museums. Uh, and on that initial tour, I talked to museums here in Spain, as well as in the UK. I lined up some interviews with some, some of the big museums, like the British Museum, uh, the British Library, the Victorian Albert Museum, etc. And I came across one very interesting conclusion, which is that some people really liked the idea and some people absolutely hated it. <laughs> And in fact, it was very polarizing, a bit like the glass. <laughs> it's right. clear and opaque. And in fact, the audience was immediately polarized. And I, I was asking myself the question, crikey, you know, why? And I got talking to, on LinkedIn, I got talking to a few different art consultants. And one of them, um, who I won't name, just in case she doesn't want to be named, uh, but she's a very prominent art consultant in the US. And she said, I don't like your idea. Because when I go into a gallery, I don't want technology impinging on my journey or on my discovery of the objects in front of me. And I thought, I've got to take this into account. But then when I spoke to the conservation community, the scientists, they loved the idea because they immediately saw the possibility to reduce light damage on objects that can be 100 or 1,000 or 5,000 years old. Uh, and by reducing light damage, you're preserving the object much better than otherwise. And, and so I immediately saw that there, was a, there had to be a balance between the exhibition of any object or collection of objects and the conservation. And you're never going to have um, either one or the other. It's got to be something in the middle. And that turned up in a customer interview with the head of science at that time of the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. Uh, which is a spectacularly wonderful place. If you haven't had the chance to go there, I definitely recommend it. Um, and he said, in fact, there's his quote, uh, which is, there must be a balance somewhere, somewhere in the middle. And that really got me thinking about this concept of equilibrium between conservation and exhibition. I later then filed a patent uh, exactly on that idea, uh, and I'm hoping to see the outcome of that patent uh, in a few months' time. Okay, so... 
Absolutely fascinating. The thing that I loved about what I heard through your journey through this was you, you really sought out your customer, right? You, you had an idea. And I think what a lot of founders do is they come up with this idea and say, this is the thing that I'm going to do. And now they force it on the marketplace. And, in, yeah. and instead, what you, you approached was, okay, wait a minute. I'm seeing a polarization here between these two sides. I could either go in and just dismiss one side and say, well, they're crazy. They don't know what they're talking about. The, the exhibition people don't really understand it. I'm going to lean on the, the conservation folks. But you look to try and find a balance between the two and find that happy medium that would allow both to get what they wanted, at least some semblance of it, and to yeah. present your idea going forward, which I think was really smart. Thank you very much. It's in fact, I realized it was down to the electronic control system that would decide um, you know, how to please both crowds. Uh, because when, when there's nobody around an object, it doesn't need to be lit. And what most museums do uh, is that in the interior spaces, everything's at about 50 lux. Now, 50 lux is very low light levels. Um, and in the Smithsonian, in fact, in the US, uh, I remember seeing the original of the American flag. Um, and the light levels in there were so low that people were actually bumping into each other. Uh, mm -hmm. And anybody who's been to that exhibition of, uh, of the American flag, um, Stars and Stripes, uh, might, uh, might be able to confirm that. Uh, so <clears throat> I, I realized that um, an electronic control system would not only be able to illuminate the object only when somebody's present, but it could also do it as a function of other parameters like the ambient light levels, the popularity of the object, uh, when the crowds tend to come to see the object between 12 and 2 in the afternoon, for example, and 5 and 6 in the evening, or something like this. Uh, and so you can, in fact, tune uh, all of our display vitrines uh, to, to maximize the display, but also to maximize the conservation. Okay, super fascinating. And one of the things I have to uh, be mindful of is I could totally get a little geeky here and dive into a <laughs> rabbit hole and we could talk about lumens and we could start getting into the specifics here. But I want to be mindful of the audience as well because they're not all out there trying to create uh, art ratio like you are. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, one of the things we teed up here a second ago was your, your focus on the customer, right? Um, yeah. And I think this is one of the things that uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you on the podcast and have this, uh, you know, interview broadcast was because you really are focused on the customer and not the product. And in, in fact, that's sort of one of your, your hallmarks. That's your, your quote, right? That's what you stand by. So talk to me a little bit about that journey of thinking about customer and not product and what that means for you. Right. So uh, we have, pivoted several times over the last 10 years uh, from initially working just exclusively with museums uh, and, and talking to them only uh, to more and more talking to private collectors and corporate collectors. Um, <clears throat> and we realized that uh, they might both be art collectors, but they are as different as chalk and cheese. And I'll explain the reason why. Uh, museums typically are built from the ground up to avoid the issue of light. In fact, when an architect, even the more recent museums like the, uh, some of the museums in the Middle East have a lot of light coming in, a lot of the galleries are, have, actually have no windows. Now, that's great for the art objects, but you need a lot of artificial lighting. 
private collectors don't live in museums. They live in private residences, and those residences have been built primarily for people. And so we realize that our market should really, uh, sorry, our product should really be geared towards the needs of the private collector because those are the ones who have the greatest need for our product because you want to have lots of natural light coming in uh, to a private residence or a corporate residence, let's say a, a bank, for example, insurance company. Uh, these companies typically have very large art collections. Uh, but if those art collections are fragile, then it's especially those pieces that need uh, this special type of protection which our products give. And so by segmenting the, the customer, by segmenting the market in this way, we realized, in fact, that we wanted to focus more on private collectors where the need was greater. And also because it's the private collectors who are driving the whole market. Uh, the art and antiquities market is not a very big market. It's about $65 billion per year, which is traded uh, on the open market, primary and secondary markets. Uh, but in fact, the vast majority, about 75% of that market is, is driven by the private collector. Hmm. And so we realized, in fact, that it would make a lot more financial sense as well as a lot more customer-oriented sense uh, to focus our products uh, first and foremost on, on the private collector. So what's fascinating about what you were just walking through is, as I strip away the details and the specifics of your journey, your experience in, in creating the company and the pivots and the directions you've taken, the thing that I heard that was really fascinating was, okay, so you started off with an idea, but you, you slalomed your way through to figure out what was the best course of action. And you learned along the way that there's... Um, you know, these different types of investors, it's not necessarily the market you were going after. You've found your niche and now you're building products and services to go in and address that specifically. And it's not the place that you started when you started this off. And in fact, you learned along the way and were nimble and uh, malleable into the marketplace to go in and find the best fit for your product and service to the customer that you probably didn't know existed when you first started this journey. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely right. Um, and in fact, anybody who's listening to the podcast who has, has got a company, who's a founder themselves, uh, they, they might well be going through the same thing right now, um, which is to pivot and then to pivot and to pivot and to pivot again, uh, because it's the pivoting which indicates that you're, you're learning on the journey. Um, and uh, we've gone down all kinds of rabbit holes. We've gone, gone round roundabouts. We've gone, we stopped <laughs> the traffic lights <laughs> to use the road. <laughs> and um, we've, we've made a lot of mistakes along the way. Um, but I think um, it's when you make those mistakes that you learn the most. Um, and I think that's what can bring a successful product to market because it's only the companies that really understand the customer who know how to build a product for that customer. Well, and let's talk about the mistakes here a little bit, because that's one of the things you and I had, had mentioned in prep. Um, I, I think it's, it's easy for founders in particular. Um, you know, it's, it, it's interesting. I've seen this uh, displayed sort of graphically where they, they have this idea of, you know, success looks like, and it looks like a, a line graph, you know, up and to the right. And what success really looks like, it's a squiggly line that doubles back on itself. And, you know, it, yeah. 
it uh, it's sort of jagged and all over the place. And it's, it's this, you know, you make a step forward and then you take two steps back. How do you, as a founder in particular, go through those, those pain points of, of failure or realizing that, hey, maybe this is a dead end or it's a traffic light or we're stuck on this roundabout, so to speak, mm. and keep moving forward and keep the energy and the enthusiasm up even when you hit those, you know, those obstacles and hurdles? I think I think every founder. I would. Oh, it's just a, an assumption that I'm making. Every founder knows why they started the company, and that's the underlying energy, the motor, uh, the heartbeat, which keeps them going. So when everybody's telling you that you're wrong, when all your customers are telling you that they don't want it, uh, when the market is saying no. Uh, you know that you're going in the right direction. You just need to pivot and you pivot and you pivot again. Um, and I think, it sh- I think it should be a good thing to embrace failure, uh, not to be afraid of it. Uh, when you're skiing down a slope, you fall over a few times, but then you learn how not to fall over. And I think it's the same when you're trying to run a company. Uh, I'd say trying because I've been a startup for 10 years uh, <laughs> and we've delivered uh, quite a few different projects and we've, We've protected some important, um, it's important artistic objects and historic objects, uh, but uh, I do not consider us to have succeeded yet uh, because we are still on that curve of learning and failing and learning and failing and, and keep keeping on doing that. But I think the underlying um, energy uh, probably comes from a deep self-belief uh, that you have in whether you really think that you're solving a problem that's worth solving and who that problem is for. Uh, And if you've talked to enough customers, uh, and I've been to uh, seminars and congresses and trade fairs, and I spent a certain amount of time talking to customers, and and I I realized that I'm on the right track uh, and that I probably need to pivot a few more times before uh, I actually do get there. I, I believe I'm on the right track. And I think a lot of company founders should be able to relate to that. Uh, you know you're going the right direction, but you're not quite there yet. And you just need to pivot a, a bit more and tweak a bit more. Well, and, and I think this is, this is one of the things that's really important. So in you know, researching the book and talking to about 70 founders over the course of uh, now 18 months, one of the things that I heard was this uh, undeniable belief that they were doing something important, that there was a need for their product or service, that they were onto something big, and that there was almost a compulsion to it, a calling. The ones that I saw that failed or struggled were the ones that held true to that belief, but weren't open to pivot, change, alteration, uh, redirection based on data from customers, markets, et cetera. And, yeah. and there's a, there's a, I think there's a healthy balance, and I'd love to get your perspective on this, of knowing that I'm onto something and that I'm doing something really important and amazing, but then also looking at what the market really wants and what the customer really wants and trying to find your way to match those two, your internal compass and what the marketplace is really looking for and how to balance in between the two of those and know when to shift and move and when not to. That's, that's, a, that's a skill that I think a lot of founders pick up along the way. 
Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I don't think I have that skill. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think I'm still learning it. Um, but uh, we only need to look back, uh, let's say, 10, 10 12 years. Uh, the biggest phone manufacturer at the time was Nokia. Um, and they they very quickly got wiped out in the market uh, by you know this company called Apple. And then Samsung came along. So they were kings. Uh, at one point, uh, you know, Microsoft were kings. At one point, IBM were kings. Uh, and the marketplace is continuously reinventing itself. I would say that some of the big companies, well, what we consider to be big companies now, the Facebooks and the Googles, uh, they're almost dinosaurs now when you come to looking at the internet space and what's going on. Uh, which is why, of course, they are so keen uh, to buy up, uh, you know, AI startups and VR startups and augmented reality startups, because, you know, that's, that's where they got to pivot to, uh, in order to stay alive. Otherwise, Google in 10 years time may not, may not even be here, which is unthinkable right now. But, you know, look at Nokia, look at, look at uh, BlackBerry. Uh, all we have to do is look 10, yeah. years, 10 years back and we see that uh, it's not impossible. There's nobody who's too big to fail. You know, one of the things that I love about C-Suite Radio, I mean love about C-Suite Radio, is our sponsors. That's right. Those are the people that put time, effort, money, resources, and their faith in this podcast. So I would really appreciate if you listen to one of them today. Thanks for listening. Now, back to the interview. Yeah, there's there's plenty of examples. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I grew up in a time where to think that that Microsoft wasn't going to be the first and foremost when you thought about technology or you thought about innovation. Um, and and now they're coming back and they're they're doing a great job of reinventing themselves and and reemerging in the marketplace, but you know, for years they went they went super quiet and um, and yeah, you're you're absolutely right. If you can be kings today and you can be you know, pawns tomorrow, right? So, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> great, great insight. Um, well, and and I think that's one of the things too is uh, the other part that I love about what you've been doing and how you've been approaching this is, I think there's a tendency to want to go internal into the company and sort of go into the lab and keep tweaking and reinventing and become a little bit of you know. Uh, Frankenstein, right? Where you go in and you're sort of looking at how can I go in and keep tweaking and reinventing and engaging in this product? And what you did was, I mean, look, it was it was a bold move, right? You you had a prototype and you were going to the British Museum, like you you didn't dip your toe in the water, you jumped no. full <laughs> in, right? And That's and right. you you went and talked to. Um, some of the, you know, probably the best names on the planet in some of the best institutions and got an inside track of what they were looking for and what their needs were. And, and then you went to congresses and you went to different trade shows and events and you talked to a myriad of customers to get that broad scope of insights almost um, from a curiosity standpoint of, I would imagine like you couldn't get enough information from all these different customers and these different inputs. Yeah, absolutely right. And one thing that we did learn, in fact, there's quite a few things that we learned along the way. Uh, and one is that the the audience that we were pitching this product to was super conservative. In fact, a lot of people say that the art sector uh, is uh, almost technology phobic mm-hmm. in some ways. Um, because, uh, well, there's no, there's no real because. It's just kind of the way that uh, it is at the moment. Uh, but you know you are getting a lot of startups 
at the moment who are operating in this art space and this it's even got a name it's, you know they call art tech whereas you got fintech and so there's a sort of a segment called art tech where you got technology companies applying themselves to the art world um so it's it's changing it's very slow um and when you understand the customer uh, you'll realize for example that the kind of objects which you could potential we could potentially be protecting are either worth a lot financially or they're worth a lot historically or culturally so one of the objects that we've had a lot of pride in protecting uh, is the original map of the 1815 battle of waterloo uh, in which uh, napoleon was finally defeated and the actual map itself is not very much to look at it's basically 10 bits pieces of paper sort of sewn together stitched together and uh, the thing is about it's pretty big about 1.7 by 1.4 meters and so um and yet the historical importance of that object was immense and when that particular museum uh, came to us and said we understand you have a light Uh, a light protection solution and we have something which is a very important and b very sensitive can you help us then uh, we realized that you know it's not just the financial value uh, it's the cultural historical value of what we're doing um and there is no other map which is the original map of the 1815 battle of water there is only one Hmm. And so we've realized that of course we are as a small company we are bound to face a barrier when you consider a map I don't know what the value of that map would be let's say it's a couple of hundred thousand dollars um you know are you going to take the risk of hiring a small company that nobody's ever heard of to protect a document as important as that are you going to take that risk or not and that can go a little bit the the way to explain the conservative approach that our customers typically have because what they are what's in their collection is either unique it's irreplaceable or it's culturally or artistically or historically one of a kind it's it's it cannot be replaced uh, and and so on our journey we've re- we found out all of these things the conservative nature the high value of objects the fragility uh the historical importance etc uh and uh really from 10 years ago i knew nothing at all about <laughs> about art about the museum sector uh it's thanks to the people i've talked to that and the things that i've read that i've i've learned so much along the way well and and i think that, again the thing that is transferable here for every founder whether they're in art tech or not and i'm guessing 99.9 repeating nines of the people that are listening are not in art tech but the the important part of this is it's really understanding the drives and motivations and even the emotions of your customer and understanding what's what's um behind their behaviors so I think it would have been easy to come in and say great I've built this amazing product I know it works and then go out there and start pitching it and if you don't understand the sensitivities the again the emotion that's behind it that people are looking at there's only one map of the battle of waterloo um and and even if there is a monetary value there's only one and so 
if they're looking at these as irreplaceable pieces and they have a connection to them, that's going to impact their buying behavior and their buying decisions. Now, maybe you're just creating candy bars, maybe you're just doing smartphones, maybe you're doing a technology solution, maybe you're doing something that helps people become more social, but there's always an emotion behind why the person buys. And I think what typically happens is we skip over those steps of understanding what the customer's um, motivations are, what their journey is, what their experience is, and what they're really trying to buy and experience. And when we do that, I think we miss in terms of aligning our products and services and the things that we're really passionate to into that marketplace. So full yes. marks for for going in and going through that almost exhaustive journey of of you know trying to figure that out and come to those conclusions and have that kind of insight that makes you a smarter better leader <laughs> thanks uh, there was one story which um uh, i found as well uh, along the way uh, which was uh, there were com- I, was, I saw a comparison between you know buying art objects and buying real estate um and the comparison was if you see a house and you love that house and it's a beautiful house but you know that they can be building uh, a freeway right next to it in five years' time or, a, or an airport right next to it in, in, <laughs> in the next 10 years, would it make a good investment? Uh, so it's a beautiful house, but as soon as you buy it, it's going to drop in value by 90%. Uh, so the question is, you know, would you buy it? And uh, a lot of the art consultants out there uh, take the approach that art is – is the same thing. It's, it's another piece of property, uh, which might be beautiful and might be historically important, but you should also as equally buy with your head as you should with your heart, which means that you should consider uh, the state of the object, for example, uh, its rarity, its provenance, um, etc., before actually investing. Now, a lot of uh, a, a lot of the another further segmentation that we found along the way was that, um, and this comes from a number of different uh, reports, such as the the Art Basel UBS uh, Art Market Report, which is a very good report I refer to all the time, um, and they often talk about. Um, you know, the world of art collecting is being sort of dividing into those who are lovers of art. In other words, those who look at it with their hearts only, and as opposed to those who look at it with their heads only in terms of just an investment opportunity. And there's a sort of middle ground, a gray area right in the middle where people are doing a bit of, bit of both. Uh, and so kind of the trend that we're seeing along, along the art world is to try and move people away from the extremities towards the gray area where you buy with your head as well as your heart. Perfect. Okay. So uh, the podcast goes by really quickly and I think we could spend a good deal of time just going in and and again down this rabbit hole of talking about art. But one thing I want to try and get from you because I think you've got a pretty good sense of this as well is, so it's one thing I think for for a founder as an individual to take this customer centric approach. But as you bring people on, you know, formally as employees, informally as, as, uh, uh, you know, partners or in terms of uh, agency workers, et cetera, as you bring people into this journey to help you along the way, how do you instill that same sense of 
customer curiosity, for lack of a better turn of phrase, and make sure that they're thinking about the customer experience and the end result the same way that you are? How do you transfer that passion, that energy, that information to them and get them thinking along the same ways that you do? Uh, well, I think I'm lucky because the people I, that I work with already have that passion. Uh, so I tend to try to look for people who already understand uh, that the customer is king uh, and that we are never going to be successful if we make the most amazing product in the world, which nobody actually wants. Hmm. Uh, but of course, um, part of my job is to, is to sell internally within my team uh, and to make sure that each person in the team understands the big picture as well as you know their particular small picture. Uh, so I don't try to create silos. I believe in a collaborative approach to working where the, the marketing uh, is, has as much knowledge or has a very good knowledge of the technology aspect and the supply chain uh, and, and vice versa. The supply chain should understand how we market this product. Uh, so, so that at some point you get, or hopefully, you know, I'll be developing a team where the people in the team have a very good big picture. And for whatever reason, if I cannot take a call with a customer, uh, I know that the person who picks up the phone is going to transmit the same ideas, the big picture, as well as their yeah. particular area, which might be marketing or you know, art conservation or technology, for example. So I, I think, um, I mean, I, I, I'm, I wouldn't profess to uh, being any kind of great leader or <laughs> anything like that. But um, what I have learned along the way is that if I was a member of that team, I would want to have the big picture as well. I would want to be not just an agent working in that company, but a potential owner of the company at some point. In some ways, you think of everybody as a co-owner. Well, and, and I think you're underselling yourself a little bit here because while you say that you have a group of people that have the same passion and energy around you that you do, you also help to curate that. I mean, I think one of the things that you're doing is whether you're formalizing that process or not, you're looking for people that think of the customer first, that treat the customer as king, that have that same curiosity and passion and energy that you do. And so while you might not be formalizing that and saying, well, okay, here's five questions I'm going to ask during the interview process, you're evaluating and sussing out your candidates and people that are going to come work with or for you or around you based on some of those desires and that basic fundamental understanding of the customer. And then you, you treat them in a way that enables them, empowers them to make smart decisions, to be a... Um, you know, an, an advocate of you in the conversations with customers or their interactions with, you know, other engineers or interactions with um, um, anybody that your company touches or interacts with. So uh, I love the idea that you're kind of looking for people that have that basic demeanor in them, even if you haven't sort of put that in the job description. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think, um, I don't know whether other founders have been through uh, the same thing, but probably building the team is uh, probably the, the most difficult part of, uh, of creating a company. Uh, because if you find the right people, then you have the right mix of skills, 
as well as experience and also passion and energy to get you through those difficult times. And, you know, we've been through a number of different near-death experiences, <laughs> like most companies have, I guess. And I'm, I'm talking even about the big ones. Uh, so I, I think when you have good people in your team, uh, that makes all the difference. Uh, and I think we probably all have had the typical customer sales call from somebody who's, who's working at a large company and you don't really get the passion. You, you kind of get the impression that they just want to sell you something. And uh, that is exactly what the customer does not want. Uh, and so when I approach my customers, uh, I try to learn from all of those cold calls that I've been on the receiving end of. Uh, and I think I do not want to sound like that when I talk to a customer. Uh, I want to understand what they're saying. I want to be able to relate to them and I want to be honest with them. And I think honesty creates trust and it's a trust that finally creates business. Oh, I love it. Okay. So just to kind of recap some of the things we, we talked about today, we, you know, we started off with this idea of pivot and this notion that you, you know, you started doing something um, based on the, the sort of germination of an idea, but that took you in unique, interesting, <clears throat> excuse me, different directions because you investigated and invested time in the customer and trying to understand what their needs, wants, and desires were. You took the bold step to go after some of the bigs right off the bat and get their input and insight and, you know, walked around with a, uh, you know, with a prototype that you had put together. You focused on what the customer's needs, wants, and desires were, and then built products and service around that and continuously evolved it, pivoted along the way. You have put the customer first, foremost, front and center in your sort of design and direction of your organization. And then you sought out people that had that same um, mindset, that same philosophy that you did. And then you empowered and enabled them to be you know, agents of you as you, uh, as you grew and, and built the organization. And while you're not considering yourself a success just yet, you're on a great path and you've developed a company and a service that, um, that definitely has a need in the marketplace. And now it's just going and executing against it. Does that sound like yes. a pretty good recap? Yep, it's a pretty good recap. <laughs> love it. Well, <laughs> the, thing, the thing that I loved about this was, and, and again, why I was so excited to get you on the podcast today was, what you're doing is something holistically different than I think most founders that we talk to, especially here in Silicon Valley. It's very, you know, like you talked about, it's fintech. It's some, some other type of tech that I think most people could get their head around and say, okay, this is for the purpose of um, growing or building or helping businesses to become better. And what you're doing here is something unique and different, but also a space that you didn't have an experience in and, and something that took you in a whole new direction. You had to uncover why do these people buy? What are they interested in? What are they preserving? What's the emotion behind it? Mm. And that curiosity really led you into this amazing place. And so not only have you created a great product, but I think the experience that you've had as a founder to go in and do that is unique and one that that could serve as a template for other founders that are out there that are trying to find their way through this to connect in with their customer and find their place in the market and find their niche, the thing that they can do better than anybody else. And the answer is out there. It's just investigating with the customer, which is something that you do so well. 
<laughs> yes. I, I've spent a lot of money over the past 10 years. I would estimate something <laughs> in the region of a quarter, a quarter of a million uh, easily. Uh, on all of the iterations that we've been through, the whole time that we've delivered projects, some some have uh, haven't succeeded so well. Some have succeeded. Uh, I could have spent that same money on a Harvard MBA, uh, and I I go I, I wonder to myself, you know, what would have been a better investment? Uh, I'm I'm sure a Harvard MBA is uh, is a very good investment, uh, but I think uh, there's no substitute for execution. I think there's no substitute for actually doing it and you can have all the qualifications in the world uh, but still not know how to deliver and we as founders of companies our customers really don't give a damn about whether we have an MBA from Harvard or from Warwick or from somewhere else that's not going to impress them Uh, what's really going to impress them is that when they see your product whether they understand immediately that how it's going to benefit them or with us with a bit of help they can understand why they would want something like this what the problem is that we're actually solving um, and I think that is key so all the time and money that I spent in the past 10 years developing this area uh, I think one day I'm hoping it's going to be worth it um, any other founders out there might be doing the same thing right now, investing their own money, uh, putting everything on the line, so to speak, and coming away seemingly at the end with nothing. And you might think, I've wasted all my money, but you haven't wasted your money because nobody else has been through what you have just been through. Every year, the Harvards and the Stanfords, they produce hundreds of graduates, but nobody has the founder's experience because it is unique. And you can spend a quarter of a million, but it's probably worth 10 times that. Oh, that's perfect. All right. Those are excellent words to leave on. Thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today. I love this idea of experience and what that experience means and the value of that, even if you fail along the way. Uh, truer words were never spoken. So thank you for hopping on the call today. So enjoyed this and wish you every success in your journey going forward. Thank you very much, Todd. It's been a pleasure talking with you. And uh, I, I hope it's been of some use to those who are listening. Oh, I'd, I'd say a, a positive hell yes for that. <laughs> All right, thank you very much, again. Todd. All the best. I love this conversation with him. Again, one of those things where Art conservation, not something I would typically jump up and down and say, tell me more. But he does a fantastic job of telling the story, telling who he is, where he came from, why he's interested, and how he pivoted, 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 and then pivoted again all along the way. He does a fantastic job of understanding his customer and taking it to that next proverbial level. We can all learn something pretty phenomenal from Manoj. If you'd like to follow him, and I suggest you do, you can go to his website, which is artratio.co.uk. Again, that's artratio.co.uk. You can also look him up at artratio.uk on Facebook, same thing on Twitter, or you can follow him on LinkedIn. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more of interviews like this, 
by all means, we suggest you pick up a copy of the book Beyond Product. That's Beyond Product, now available on Amazon, uh, Barnes and Nobles, and on the website foundersplace.co. That's foundersplace.co. Thanks again. Have a great week. You've been listening to the Founders Place podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. For past episodes, blogs, and more, visit us at foundersplace.co. That's foundersplace.co. And thanks for listening to the Founders Place podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.